Hi, I'm Liz Williams of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast that explores the intersection of museums and cuisine. We are here today at the Tennessee State Museum with Darius Smith, graphic designer of ex exhibitions, um, Denise Gallagher, the director of exhibitions, and Dakota Elliott, curatorial assistant. All of them worked on a fabulous exhibit that's here right now at the museum called Let's Eat, Origins and Evolutions of Tennessee Food. Welcome to the podcast. Thank so, you. I want to start this conversation with how you decided as a museum that this would be an exhibit that you wanted to do. Um, I can answer that. Um, I'm Denise. Um, and uh, I was part of that early, early phase where the director and the head curator were all in a room trying to figure out what, how to program our new space. We just opened um, our building last October, and um, we really were, were thinking of shows that had a statewide focus and um, that could kind of bring people in. Um, in a way that, that people could relate to. And we really wanted to feature something quickly as we opened that, that um, allowed us to partner with the farmer's market, which was located next to us. So that really, um, it kind of started with an idea. And, um, and then our, the curator, um, Rob DeHart, really kind of crafted it from there. And so when you decided to do this, what was the timeline between when you made that decision and then it, it opened? Well, that's a great question. Um, we, we are um, working fast right now. <laughs> uh, it's, our, it's our desire to um, let the lead times kind of extend and, and not be under so much pressure. Um, but uh, we pulled it off um, in uh, at least less than six months, I would say, um, the whole thing. So Dakota, in the curatorial meetings and all of that sort of thing, um, do, would you say that it was any different than other curatorial meetings? Were there special things that you felt that you had to do to tell the story of food that you might not have had to do if everything could be an easy artifact? Right. It was, well, we had a lot of fun in the meetings. Um, and what I think was a little different about it was that we focused a lot on contemporary food. You know, so many exhibits. You know, where it's a lot of you know, everything is in the past, and of course, this the foundation is in the history of it, but we do work up through today. So, I think figuring, especially with um, Rob, the lead curator, figuring out where we were going to go uh, in you know today and how we were going to represent that made it different from other exhibits. And so, how did you decide to represent that? Um, <clears throat> well, there was a lot of brainstorming between departments, but Rob. Um, worked with scholars on the project and they decided where we would go and what would work best with um, the outline that, that he made for the project. So when you say you worked with scholars, do you mean that they suggested, oh, this dish represents this or this place represents this or how, how did they specify things for you? Well, I know he worked with scholars in each different division of the state because we wanted to do a good job representing the whole state. Um, I'm not exactly sure how what those discussions um, consisted of and how he ended up on each place, but by the end... By place, you mean what? By place, oh, that's a good point. Well, we focus place in terms of 
what region of the state it was in, but place also in terms of the restaurants uh, and place in terms of the food. So I think there were a lot of factors that went into it. Um, and once, it, like I said, once that was decided, then, um, then we went on those trips. You went on trips, and then what? Did you try to collect artifacts, take pictures, do oral yes. histories? How did you handle it? All, all of the above, actually, yeah. Um, so for each, for each place, we... Um, Sometimes it depend. There was a person, either Rob or another um, uh, staff on exhibit, who was sort of assigned to that panel. So each restaurant were, was given a panel uh, in the exhibit, and which Daria made look awesome. <laughs> and then, so someone was the lead researcher for that day, uh, and they had the questions prepared for the owner or whichever person we'd be speaking to or people we were speaking to. And then we would make sure we'd take uh, photo, photos of the food, the environment, the space, the outside. Um, and we also tried to take pictures of the people or the person you're doing. So we would try the food also. And then we would interview the people. And it wasn't, um, you know, an official oral interview where we were recording and such. But we were asking them questions. And we tried to incorporate quotes in a lot of the panels for today. So... Yeah. Okay, did you feel, all any of you, or all of you, did you feel that you were very text-heavy because um, there might not have been as many artifacts as you might have normally had in an exhibit? I think, this is Daria speaking, um, I think from a design point of view, it was a lot more graphic-heavy because we had these... Um, modern photography done on site and we were had this you know just array of different photographies from different places that we were highlighting I think the purpose is that like food is a very visual thing so I don't think text was as necessary than the having like images of the food that we were talking about um, we did use a lot of artifacts to try and tell that story as well. So everything, I think this exhibit was specifically a more visual kind of exhibit than like actually reading text or words. I've gone to a lot of food exhibits that have been very two-dimensional, which sometimes makes you feel sort of unsatisfied. Um, and this didn't feel that way. Um, so I, I thought there was a good mix of artifacts and photographs because sometimes photographs can be flat. Mm -hmm. um, so I congratulate you on that because it's very lively. So Daria, tell me about how you approached um, the actual um, design of the exhibit. Um, so we worked with a um, exhibit designer, uh, Miriam, who kind of laid out the spatial um, way that we would go about the exhibit. And I did more of the visuals, the graphics, colors, um, and our team also worked on interactives. And the best way we went about it, I think, was just thinking about how do people interact with food and how can we represent that in a way that is compliable with like museum etiquette um so and what, what conflicts did you anticipate um a lot of people um wondering where food is when we're talking about a food exhibit um we're using like instruments and like table settings and things like that we're not actually having food being present so we were trying to decide like how 
what's the best way to represent actual food and like having fake food and 3D representations of it was the best way that we could come up with. But also it was talking about how also to make this exhibit be more about community and like the human condition around food, not just eating it. And I think a a lot of it was inspired by like food festivals, um, restaurants, things like that, that are like about food, but not necessarily the the actual tasting of it or the smelling <laughs> or the of smelling it. Of it. we, we yeah. thought about smells early on but then we abandoned that idea <laughs> um but um it was a, the, the the i think some of the success of the exhibit um came from the strategy the curators took um doing the field work and um collecting um those stories firsthand um, and um, uh, Dakota didn't mention this, but she actually was um, the photographer. So um, a lot of the images up there that are on site, um, she took them all. And she um, brought a lot of consistency and, and a, uh, really bright colors to the show. And that really um, inspired Daria to be able to match that color saturation with the colors that you see. And we really kind of took it up a notch because then we added illustrations and and lots of patterns into it. And I guess with food, you can't go too far because it's it's like a celebration so we really we really brought that celebratory um um, vibe to the show we have auto we have audio that kind of has like clinking sounds of dishes um and there's four videos that some are touch screens so they're not on all the time but then there is one in the back that's on all the time um and um, we really focused on the visitor, trying to give um, visitors a um, way to interact with the show, even though, um, you know, most museums, like kids go to, you can't touch anything. We want to make sure that in our shows, if that's what you, if you want to run to, to um, touch something, there's something to, there for you. And um, we really wanted to engage visitors with the voting, which is an idea that we saw in, even in your museum. <laughs> um, and um, uh, we, as Derry mentioned, we, we created... Um, like a place where you could make your own barbecue sauce and fill in and think. So we tried to make moments where you were thinking about what you like or what your food history is, um, which is which, which when you vote sweet or unsweet with your cornbread, you know, you have a conversation with whoever you're with. Maybe such strangers will will get into it because they'll say, no, not sweet, unsweet. I mean, people <laughs> rip it out of your hand and put it in the other one. Um, and, um, you know, one of the first days we opened, I saw a mother, like, breastfeeding her baby back in the corner watching um, the, um, the film that was on, you know, the international community. And she just found that place to be safe. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that is amazing. So we had a lot of fun working on the show um, as a team. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question that actually has happened somewhere else, where there was a discussion with conservators who were very distressed about having carbonized food in a pot that um, they worried might attract bugs. Did you all have a discussion? Because I noticed that you have carbonized food in one of the pots that you have on display. Was that ever an issue? Um, That particular frying pan also went through a fire I don't know if that played into the the equation, Um, but um, those particular items are on loan, and um, it, you know, I think maybe a decision was made that it was it was okay for the for the temporary time we had it, but um, 
um, you know, having all the artifacts cleaned, and especially when you're bringing loaned items in, um, you know, we we thought a lot about it. We there was a, a stove that we really wanted, um, but to clean it would have required a crazy amount of um, resources to get all the grease off of it. And in the end, we just decided that we couldn't put all that the resources into into it. But it was it was a tough decision. So the frying pan made it through the gauntlet. Um, but um, it just I guess it depends on how strict your conservator team is, is. Mm-hmm. and um, and I guess those are just choices that you have to make. How long is the exhibit going to be up for a total time? Um, it opened in August. August 9th. Yes. Um, so August, September, October, November, December, January. So a uh, six-month show. It'll come down in early February. Okay. So you just kind of made the decision that it's worth it for the whatever risk there is. It, six months is not such a long time. I... Anyway, it made me excited. You saw me when I... Yeah, <laughs> I you did get excited when you saw that. <laughs> well, I I believe that if you had sandblasted it or whatever, just to make it pure, you know, in terms of um, whatever influence it could have had on something else, then what, what you're doing is taking away all of the character from it. And so you might as well put a new pot in there. The fact that it actually was a pot from a particular place is not relevant almost anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, so the idea that you can show that it's really, it's been used and this is what's happened to it through its use or whatever is part of the story of that pot. So when you take that away from it, then you've lost, I think you've lost something. Now I understand the conservator's point of view, so it's not that I'm that simple-minded and mm-hmm. I can't figure mm-hmm. that out but I also think that once it's carbonized it's carbonized mm-hmm. and so it's not going to attract insects mm-hmm. anymore and I do think it's a balancing act that you have uh, you know we have food all the time mm-hmm. and so um, uh, we spend more time keeping the fragile and important things away from the food by keeping them in something that whereas the rest of the space is more open Mm -hmm. and so that's the way we protect them because obviously those things need to be protected but uh it's it's an interesting um kind of decision that you have to make where you're trying to make a point with the artifact and you also have a responsibility to preserve the artifacts so it's a it's a it's a balancing act i think also um we also this was our first time using mavert cases um and they were like brand new they're really high end and really efficient and i think we were pretty reliant on that safety and that conservation being held withheld with those cases Mm -hmm. i think that makes a difference did you fill them with any kind of gas or anything like that? No. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, that's another step you mm-hmm. know, that you can take mm-hmm. to make sure that nothing nothing gets in there. Um, I will tell you that I once went to a museum, and inside the museum was a case, and it was a really kind of Victorian-era case that was um, just glass, window glass. It was beveled and lovely, but um, in a cabinet that was just 
four, you know, the glass was on all four sides and a glass on the top. It was a little bit raised. Um, and inside of it was a woolen um, uniform. And inside of the case, I was watching termites swarm. And it was just, just awful to see that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm totally cognizant of the fact that this is a danger mm-hmm. um, and that you really have to be ever vigilant. But at the same time, you have to remember that there is something to learn from mm-hmm. the use and the wear and the remains of the use and the wear. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and because we just opened the the larger uh, permanent collection, um, we we had um, conservators um, conserving nearly every artifact that went upstairs. And we, because we do have this pristine, brand new building, um, we are trying to to you know have extremely high standards. Um, but um, the choice was made to put that in. And sometimes curators can be very persuasive. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> So that's, and that's good. I mean, they're trying to represent that story, but yeah. So I also want to talk to you about your representation of actual food, not the representation through photography, but Mm -hmm. the sort of plastic representation of the food. Um, I mean, some, there's something kind of fun about it, especially the way you have it displayed in a way that makes it light and you're saying look this is plastic food Mm -hmm. and you're acknowledging it in the way you're presenting it which I think makes it um, a little bit better Uh, we actually had conversations about whether to use plastic food or to do paper mache or something that was less obviously like the real thing you know so that we we more similar yeah just kind of different approaches Yes, the, mm-hmm. and, and so how did you decide we're going to do plastic? I think it was it was cool to have the most realistic that we could get to actual food mm-hmm. in the museum. And I feel like um, you don't really see that as often. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of fake food you see in, like, kid toys and stuff, you don't really see it put up to a higher standard mm-hmm. of being in a museum. <laughs> um, but it was a... And not the standard of realism that yeah. you have. Yes. Yeah, we, it was a playful um, treatment. Um, it like some of the, like the, the apple pie is super shiny. We were fine with that, you know. <laughs> we uh, we and we put them under. It's a big long table with um, domes, and under the dome we have a collection of food that represents food festivals. We just let that be a fun place, a fun. Um, it's touchable. The domes, you know, I mean, if you really start yanking on them, they could come off. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, it allowed the fake food not to get touched because that's we wanted to use fake food. But we also knew that it was delicate, you know, and mm-hmm. if it if you let it visitors touch, literally touch the fake food because being tactile is always important. Um, but we kind of had a middle ground of of, of kind of having fun with the fake food, but um, presenting in a kind of a, a like artsy, mm-hmm. f- clever way. We think we had fun with that, especially. But we did have to get a lot of custom fake food, and it's more expensive than you would realize. <laughs> I think that's really true. Really, <laughs> but I mean, it shows the craftsmanship that goes into it. Well, especially if you have to have it custom made. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's some things on the internet that are just available uh, things like apples i think um, yeah yeah we, those were easy, easy yeah. to get mm-hmm. but um but before we move on from this oh, i definitely yes. want to talk about the tasty videos 
but we call them the tasty videos because that was a way to present food that that we were, we were also really proud of mm-hmm. um and that involved here i'll let you kind of yeah, talk about I'm that i'm obsessed with food so <laughs> i i have like this whole list on instagram of um tasty videos and they they become really popular for like these minute long recipe showing like how to make lasagna or like just random kind of recipes and so I was like this is a this is really engaging for younger people um and they'll actually pay attention like I've made recipes from those videos like I'm like oh I want to do this and so we had these um older cookbooks with all these recipes in them and we didn't really have artifacts for that section so it was really like how can we represent these cookbooks how can we represent these recipes without having you to read them all the time because there's already text and so I thought it's tasty videos and I was like so excited and it's really fun it'll get people um watching something other than you know the artifacts you still see food itself um being represented so it was just really fun to do (laughs) well and I like the fact that you used hands because that's all you see in the tasty videos um you used hands that reflected the person whose book you were talking about. So Mm -hmm. you have women's hands when it's a woman's Mm -hmm. book. You have African-American hands when it was an African-American author. And I thought that was a very thoughtful touch to... uh, to add to yeah, idea. it was it was a, it's subtle, but it is important to let their representation um, be modernized as well. And we didn't want to lose that um, that that fact is that you know part of the reason these cookbooks were so significant was that the um, challenges that these African American chefs had to overcome. Um, and one of our chefs was the first African American woman to publish a cookbook, and I think she's nationally recognized for that. And is being studied right now. So hopefully there'll be more information coming out on her. Melinda Russell, do you want to add to it? You've done a lot of research on some of those historic um, chefs. I know, like, research does continue because at a certain point the record on her sort of fades and they want to see if they can find more of the later in her life. So I know... um, People we've, part, uh, we've worked with at the Tennessee State Library and Archives, too, are very much actively researching her um, to see um, sort of what happened. Is that the only cookbook that she wrote? It's um, a good question. That is a good question. To my knowledge, yes. I would have to double-check that, though. Um, but Yeah, I think she, um, this, the story that I know, uh, she left the South and went to Michigan t- and to publish it. Um, and then she came back south, and then she kind of drops off the record. So we're not sure. It may be her only work. but What year did she publish it? 1868 or something, right after the Civil right War. After the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was the oldest author. and then um, was she, Had she been enslaved in Tennessee? Uh, no, I'm not sure. Something I, I know. Is, that whole panel was... Um, that panel was done by uh, Rob, the lead curator. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, I, can, I can tell you all about the beaten biscuits. That's <laughs> <laughs> the one I read about. Uh, we should talk about this. Yeah, so off the top of my head, I'm not familiar as familiar with her on those questions. But, like I said, I do know that there is still interest, especially since sort of the document trail ends. Um, very suddenly, so I do think people are actively looking to see if they can 
tell that story. Yeah, her. yeah. Bring mm-hmm. bring her story, um, you know, forward and and get her her accomplishments more more recognized, more under, more well known. Mm-hmm. So that was really cool to, for us to feature her. I thought. Yes. Yes, and it's it's great because she happens to also be from Tennessee, and so you get to. Put her in. Reclaim her, man. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. In, um, in Louisiana, we have um, an African-American woman that we believe, and of course more research must be done sort of thing, but um, we believe she has, is the first African-American who has a cookbook, I mean a, a TV show named after her. So she... In 1949, she began um, a television show that was twice a week that was called um, Lena Richards' Cookbook, New Orleans Cookbook. And um, she was on TV twice a week. And you can see when the newspapers of the time in the TV section of the paper, there she is. She was such a popular... Um, show that they would put pictures of her as the as you know come watch tv you know Mm -hmm. kind of thing now this is 1949 not that many people have television sets or anything like that but she wrote her own cookbook i mean talk about martha stewart i mean she wrote a cookbook and then she has a tv show that promotes the cookbook and all this sort of Mm -hmm. thing and then um um Clementine Paddleford, who was a mid-20th century food writer, read her cookbook and went to Houghton Mifflin and said, because she had to self-publish the Mm -hmm. cookbook, and um, said, this cookbook needs to be published. And so Houghton Mifflin published it, and so then it was widely available. And um, then she died in 1950. Because she was quite young when she died. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, who knows what she would have accomplished. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, that, that was over. And there are no kinescopes, even though um, it was early TV. Anything from 1951 forward, they're kinescopes. So TV used to be like radio. It just goes out into the air, and there was no tape. There was nothing, you know. Wow. And so it wasn't filmed. It was there was nothing. Mm. It was just broadcast, just like radio was broadcast. Mm. So then somebody came up with the idea of putting a film camera in front of the television set and filming it as it was broadcast, the way you might be able to tape a radio show. But they didn't think of that till 1951. So all the really old things you can watch on YouTube or whatever were done that way. And you can't find anything before 1951. And so since she died in 1950, there was never a it's record. Like a I mean, there, history, are lots, big time. there are lots of, of, of stills of mm-hmm. her on, on set and mm-hmm. all that sort of thing, but there aren't any kinescopes. Hmm. A, pro- a project you can do is, because I bet there's scripts from her show, maybe not, but you could recreate her show. <laughs> I went to, to the studio and um, talked to them, and they had given um, all of the 
things that they had stuff, you know, on film and then on to videotape and all that sort of thing to the University of New Orleans and for their archive. So between the University of New Orleans and what they had, I looked for scripts. I looked, the only thing that they had was um, some stills. And so that, I mean, I don't know where else to look. I heard she has a granddaughter who's alive and she doesn't have anything. Mm. So. Hmm. Well, that's a fascinating, uh, like, journey, and that it's like, yeah, that just shows how historians struggle, you know, it's struggled to tell some stories, because the, sometimes the written record isn't there, but, you know, um, but there, less, luckily, she, she made, um, published cookbooks, and that lives right. on, and that's right. amazing, though. Yes. Yeah. Huh. Food history. So what excites you about food history so much? Gosh, but partly because I really like to eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that New Orleans is such a food-obsessed town, and you absorb that from the time that you're born. I mean, you know, even like in, in school and your school lunch and all that sort of thing, it was like, you have red beans and rice on Monday, even in school. Mm. And, you know, everything was very, very food-oriented. Um uh, just enormously food oriented. We had a French a market that was um, just fascinating, uh, where you could just buy anything. And because we were a port city, in addition to being a food city, we were importing things from everywhere. So we got stuff from all around the country that came down through the port, plus everything that came from the rest of the world that came in through the port. And it, the market was just full of that. And we had, because it was a port city, we had people from all over the world who lived in the city, and they were looking for their foods. So there were markets that sold all of that really early on. And so I think that that just was fascinating to me. And then I'm half Sicilian. There was a huge influx of people from Sicily um, that came to New Orleans at the turn of the 20th century. And my grandparents were some of them. And um, so there was such a, um, even at the middle of the 20th century when I was born, there were still colonies of all of those people. And so those people were just as obsessed with their food as the New Orleanians were obsessed with their food. So it was like a double whammy for me, you know. (laughs) And so, but when I was in school, I didn't know how to study this and I wasn't interested in being a chef so there was you know there wasn't a way to study it at the time Mm -hmm. Um, and so I went to law school instead because I (laughs) you don't know what you want to do Mm -hmm. so it took a while for me to Mm -hmm. kind of make my way okay so I want to learn about your lunch and learns um, because you let people eat during lunch and learn. That's true. So how do you make that distinction, and how do you do your things that have to do with food, like making your own barbecue sauce here and all of that? Well, they're not in the galleries. The lunch and learns are in the um, digital learning center, um, and um, so that's on a different floor. Yeah, yeah. 
um, you may have heard wrong, like maybe you thought that they were in the gallery, but the Lunch and Learns are like a program that we have in the auditorium. And, and basically it's a lunch hour program, so they encourage people to attend and you can bring your lunch and eat it. And eat it. Mm -hmm. But you do let people eat. In the, in the yeah, certain areas of the museum, you know, there's an event going on. Their venue rental, um, there's, there's a lot of restrictions to food. No open flames, um, no red wine. I mean, there, it's, uh, there's some restrictions. But so, okay, I want to ask you about the red wine. But before I do that, <laughs> when there was design of the place, mm -hmm. the idea was that the downstairs would be a place where you could have receptions, therefore mm -hmm. there could be food. Yep. So yep. that was an intentional thing. And then you have the galleries beginning on another level. That's right. So that's a, a very major separation, and you can't take the food up mm -mm. to the other galleries. Mm -mm. Okay. So what are you going to hurt with red wine downstairs? The, I can I can The beautiful terrazzo floors. <laughs> <laughs> so what if you're drinking cranberry juice? Not allowed. No, no juice, okay. no punch. No, nothing. The, yeah, that's nothing. just it's like just the fear that it would stain the floors. Okay, that's all. We have to keep our aesthetic. <laughs> the architect is she loves this building, so she's she's very into the restrictions. Yeah. So um, with the programming for the show, there has been more emphasis on trying to actually incorporate like food and tasting, and there's a um, a class, a food class that that goes into the history, and I think there's. Um, it's kind of modeled after, you know, the um, Tenement Museum has the food tours where you go out and, and experience um, the city, but then you come back and you use food as a vehicle to talk, talk about people and history. So I, I think that um, that, is the, that is the way that museums are, are able to, to really embrace food is that, that there's, there's such a story to be told. And in, in if you can get past the fact that you might can't taste it right then and there, you can, you know, everyone's minds are so, you have such imagination and food is so accessible and it's in part of everyone's life that, um, you know, so far the reception of the show has been really positive just because it's a relatable topic. You don't have to worry about dates or <laughs> timelines or, you know, um, and you can just kind of en enjoy whatever memories or whatever connections that you make. And it, it means something to everyone. Yeah. Everybody yeah. Eats. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the, the things that makes me happy about food right now um, and the way people feel about food right now is that there's finally a recognition that food is, gives, gives you access to talk about almost everything. I mean, food allows you to talk about movement of people, mm -hmm. trade routes. Mm -hmm. uh, it tells well, you can talk about war through food mm -hmm. and the deprivation of food that can be come uh, as a part of war. And um, uh, you can talk about economics and you can talk about science. You could talk about so much through food. Mm -hmm. And I think it's only now that people are finally recognizing that. And then, of course, it makes you start to think about why it's taken so long for the people to recognize food, and whether it's because it was the work of the second class, whether it was because of race or gender or whatever, um, and so it was t totally quotidian, and so it wasn't important. So. I, I, I think you're right. I think it, though, uh, I think a lot of people are waking up to the um, to the historic value of food and the stories and the the social 
um, relevancy. Um, you can read a taco and it can tell you so much, you know, if just, I mean, just a simple one, one food item in its many varieties, like t tells you so much. Um, and I think um, that you reminded me of another kind of big idea that the show, the curators had was, you know, uh, we are a Southern state that we are telling the Tennessee story. So a lot of the food is a Southern cuisine. Um, but what makes it Tennessee is that they went beyond the cliche and really to dig into to the like more specific stories. And that comes from going to those places across the state and really engaging with the community and um, talking to the individuals that are keeping some traditions alive or individuals that have uh, settled, um, you know, in the more modern era that are, you know, immigrated in and bringing their cuisine with them. So that and you also actually talk about the foods that are available here, which I think sometimes people kind of gloss over that, that, I mean, you know, you have ramps here, and there aren't necessarily ramps someplace else, and so you're not, you know, going to talk about ramps in Louisiana because um, they just aren't there. Mm -hmm. um, and so what does that mean, and what do you do with them, and how has that affected things, and all of that kind of thing. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that foraging, and mm -hmm. and um, I, I heard a lecture today about mushrooms, and how important mushrooms were, and I thought, yes, you know, in a place where there have got to be hundreds of different kinds of mushrooms, that could be something really, really important to be able to forage mushrooms as and it would affect your cuisine. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I think that, that that sense of place you get from the specific varieties of things that are available mm -hmm. is, also, um, is also really important. And you do cover that, which mm -hmm. I think is great. Do you remember any moments? Any specifics? Like out or that you can recall? I'm just, well, when, we, when we talk about this, you know, specifics of Tennessee and sort of if you think of a, you associate a food with a specific region. Um, of course, there's hot chicken in Nashville, but um, it's the slug burgers, too, mm -hmm. on that Mississippi River Valley, so, sort of in West Tennessee, Southwest Tennessee, and Northern Mississippi. Because mm -hmm. um, when I was, you know, first assigned, what in the world is, is that? So and I think that's, that's most people, even people in Nashville, uh, in Middle Tennessee, aren't familiar with slug burgers. So it's very specific to the region. Um, so we went to Selmer, Tennessee, to visit Pat's Cafe. Mm -hmm. um, just their popularity and how are they? Remind us what they are. Right, I should. <laughs> well, should. So, and the, to the name, it goes by a few different names, but Slug Burger. The term "slug" used to be slang for nickel, and they used to be a nickel. The price has increased now, but the name has stayed the same. And they sort of um, like champion the name. She's got a giant slug on her sign and on her T-shirts. So I think it's something they've definitely embraced. But what it is is um, it's, it, it varies on who makes it, but it's, it's a variation of sort of soy wheat um, mixed together with ground beef. And, and the, the reason for that is to make the ground Extend beef. The right, beef. right. Mm -hmm. um, make more of it. And they fry it too. Um, and not just in a large fryer. I mean, the, it's in a frying pan, so it's not grilled. It's got a crunchy outside, and it mm -hmm. almost has the color of like a, a fish patty, a fish sandwich. Um, but in people, and they're smaller, and people will buy 
and eat many of them at one time. <laughs> so, yeah, and again, th- there's different filler ingredients depending on who you ask, what restaurant you go to, and sort and of what area. How far back you're going right. in time. But, yeah. yeah, again, it was one of those items in our making-do section that sort of, although there's a few different stories of how Slug Burgers started, but it did start out of, you know, you had limited resources. How? What can we do? Um, and again, it's still a tradition through today, and, and they're fantastic. I think they're There's a Memphis restaurant in Nashville now that carries them on Fridays. Fridays. So yeah. Dakota has taken me there, and I've yeah. had them, and they yeah. are good. Yeah. All right, I have one more question, and then we'll wrap it up. So, is there anything that didn't make it into the exhibit that you really were in love with? The stove, as we mentioned before, um, that was on loan from Princess Hot Chicken um, because of conservatorial, yeah. conservatorial issues. <laughs> um, and was it like their first stove, or what was yeah, it? it? Yeah, I think it was. Or was it a generational stove? It was the. No, I think it was the first stove. Yeah, like just uh, basically the origins of hot chicken is a big topic. Um, in Nashville and, and how it's become such a national food, it's just become crazy. And now there's like a f- hot food chicken joint on every corner now in Nashville because so many tourists want to eat it when they're here. Uh, so just to just you know just building on all of that momentum, we want and there is no there is no stove in the show, and so there wasn't uh, anything an artifact that large or that was like this is what uh, the you know. Princess Hot Chicken was cooked on for decades, you know, this stove, and it would be like kind of like a star artifact, um, but it just didn't work out, and um, Rob, the curator, tried real hard. <laughs> but it just became too too many obstacles. But we have the frying pan, and we have the cash register, and, and we have the story. Right. Mm-hmm. And I know, too, there were several restaurants um, that, you know, sort of made the short list. And, again, Rob was the one who really picked where we were going at the end. But I know, I mean, it was it was a hard choice. Gee, there's so many great places. So I know um, that was something, you know, we really sort of had to pick and choose what would best, you know, represent, represent. a bit of everything. Yeah, and you have to be geographically mm-hmm. uh, covered and all of that sort of thing. But maybe yeah. we can have a part two. Yes. To be continued. Right. So thank you all for your time. This is Liz Williams. You have been listening to Tip of the Tongue, which can be found on the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation at natfab.org. Thanks for listening.